We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all of these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. And away we go. Episode 208 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Wednesday, December 15th, 2021. Ten days away, are we, from Christmas 2021. And right now, it is not season's greetings for the Washington football team. It is season's beatings for the Washington football team. A triple whammy of negativity on Tuesday. Number one, Washington's COVID-19 outbreak got even worse as the team put Kendall Fuller and Tim Settle on the reserve COVID-19 list. Did activate Daryl Roberts off the list, so note that. Uh, Number two, it turns out that Logan Thomas's season-ending knee injury is a torn ACL, contrary to what we initially thought. And number three, we have yet another lengthy expose by the Washington Post regarding the Washington football team's workplace misconduct scandal. And this expose has a whole lot to do with Dan Snyder. Oh, Donnie boy, he allegedly worked to disrupt the Beth Wilkinson investigation. Yeah, that's a problem, a big problem, if true. It was on July 17th, 2020, that the NFL, in a statement regarding the Beth Wilkinson investigation, said, and I quote, Washington has engaged outside counsel to conduct a thorough investigation into these allegations. The club has pledged that it will give its full cooperation to the investigator, and we expect the club and all employees to do so, end quote. Yeah, so much for that full 
cooperation. My friends, we have a lot to talk about on this Wednesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. I also have not one, but two special guests for you. Former Washington defensive lineman Kedrick Golston will be on the show to talk, you know, actual football regarding the Washington football team. Kedrick is a really smart guy, understands and explains the game exceptionally well. We'll talk about the improvement of Washington's defense, what has gone wrong for Chase Young and Montez Sweat this season, what Washington has in Taylor Heineke, and more. And then sports business expert Marty Conway will be on the show to discuss the Washington football team's problem with the team's fan base, a problem that was especially pronounced this past Sunday afternoon when Cowboys fans took over FedEx Field for Washington's 27-20 loss to Dallas. I'll also discuss the MLB lockout with Marty, who worked in Major League Baseball for 15 years, including working for the Orioles. So next segment, I'll discuss the latest for the Washington football team with its COVID-19 outbreak and with Logan Thomas. Then I have a lot for you on this Dan Snyder stuff from the Post, including incredible details about Dan's feud with Bruce Allen. Then my conversation with Kedra Golston. Then my chat with Marty Conway. Does that sound like a show to you? Because that sounds like a show to me. Ain't no podcast that does Washington football team talk like this podcast does Monday through Friday. Although this week, sadly, there will be no show for Friday uh, due to me being at my sister's wedding. Uh, Trust me, I am not thrilled about not doing a show for Friday, but uh, such is life. I'll only be missing the one day. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. So we're going to do a deep dive on the problem that the Washington football team has with its fan base. A problem that, understand, is the fault of the team, uh, not of us fans. Uh, It is a problem that was manifested big time with Cowboys fans overtaking FedEx Field this past Sunday. And so I on Twitter asked the question, uh, seriously, not rhetorically, is there another team in sports that consistently has its home stadium slash arena taken over by opposing teams fans the way that the Washington football team does, especially by the three other fan bases within the division? Because that's a big part of this attendance problem. All three of the other NFC East fan bases, those of the Cowboys, Philadelphia Eagles, and New York Giants, take over FedEx Field on the regular. Uh, I got lots of tweets in response to my question. Tweet from Bacon Heineke, okay? Uh, Three issues. One, people hate Dan Snyder. Two, the entire stadium is trash. Three, Game day experience is awful. With that being said, why should I invest in that? Yeah, man, no arguments here. Uh, Tweet from Tundi. You can't treat fans like suckers and marks for 20 years and expect them to keep paying good money for a bad stadium, overpriced concessions, and a subpar stadium experience. Even TV viewership is dipped. Away fans will continue taking over because it's a chance to see their teams. Tweet from Can You Dig It? The fan experience has been crap for 15 years. Had season ticks since 96, stopped a year before the name change. Section 104 turned over in six years. Apathy set in years ago. Tweet from Brandon Newsom. 
I went to the Skins draft party when Joe Gibbs came back and we drafted Sean Taylor, stood right in the end zone and watched his name called on the big screen. Place was full of New York, Philly, and Dallas fans. Has been an issue for years. Who's intimidated to come here? Nobody. Now, I did get tweets suggesting other teams that have or have had problems of opposing teams' fans' takeovers. A tweet from Timothy Wood, the 2005 through 2010 Nationals. Uh, Then something changed, I think, and I'm not sure, but it might have been when they started winning. Also, the 80s to 90s Capitals, at least when the opponent was the Rangers, Penguins, or Flyers. Tweet from Malcolm Wilson, I'm old enough to remember when Flyers fans would take over the old Cap Center in the early days, came in by the busload. Other than that, no. Uh, Multiple people suggested the Orioles, the Miami Dolphins, and the Los Angeles Chargers as having a problem as bad as the Washington football team has in terms of the team stadium being overtaken by opposing teams fans. I got soccer suggestions. Tweet from Charles Mahoney, U.S. soccer national team when it plays at home versus Mexico and other CONCACAF teams, often, not always. Tweet from Major, watch Scottish soccer. Glasgow Celtic has the best home support as well as the best traveling support. Some stadiums are two-thirds filled with opposing teams' fans. One team even encourages its fans to give up their seats knowing that Glasgow Celtic fans would buy the tickets. Uh, And I got many more tweets in response to my question. Tweet from JB. I've been in the D.C. area since 87. I have worked and hung out with Cowboys, Steelers, and Ravens fans. I get Ravens because they live in slash near Baltimore. Uh, Hard to get a decent job in western Pennsylvania. So Steelers fans moved here and brought their loyalty with them and their loyalty to the Penguins. Can't figure out the Dallas thing. Lots of them. A tweet from Car Care Specialties. Jack Kent Cook would never have allowed this to happen. Tweet from Matty Ice. There also may not be a fan base that hates itself more. Uh, talking about the self-loathing of the Washington football team fan. I actually agree with you on that, Matty Ice. We do have a lot of intra-fan base battles as Washington fans. Tweet from J. Rodney Rhodes. At least we can have great silent counts. Yes, Jay, that is true. Well, an attendance problem for a football team is bad, but a serious health problem for a person is worse. Skin cancer is a real problem in this country. Skin cancer is among the most common of all cancers in the United States. Skin cancer is what Ron Rivera dealt with last year, right? He dealt with squamous cell carcinoma. If you have concerns about your skin, if you're dealing with skin cancer, if you have had skin cancer and haven't seen a doctor in a while, always know that Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland are there for you. Dr. Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. He is one of the nation's premier dermatologists. He's a big Washington football team fan and listener of this podcast. And operating under his direction is the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions, including skin cancer. Dr. Verghese and his team offer state-of-the-art treatments for skin cancer, including something that's a game changer, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. 
SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is safe, effective, and non-surgical. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects, cosmetic and otherwise, that come with surgery. You have options. SRT is an option, and Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer the option of SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That's 301-396-3401, or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. So we on Tuesday, which is the Washington football team's off day uh, in a usual Sunday game week during the regular season, had anything but an off day in terms of Washington football team news. Next segment, I'll get to the latest article on the Washington football team's workplace misconduct scandal from the Washington Post. But right now, let's talk about the actual football news from Tuesday. Two major items, neither of which was good. So Washington's COVID-19 outbreak now is worse. Kendall Fuller and Tim Settle have gone down. Two Virginia Tech Hokies have gone down. Uh, Washington on Tuesday afternoon plays corner Kendall Fuller and interior defensive lineman Tim Settle on the reserve COVID-19 list. And Fuller, per the understanding of Washington football team insider J.P. Finley of NBC Sports Washington, isn't vaccinated for COVID-19. So that means that Kendall Fuller will definitely miss this Sunday afternoon's game at the Philadelphia Eagles at one. Terrible news. Now, Washington on Tuesday did activate a player off the reserve COVID-19 list. Washington activated corner Daryl Roberts off the reserve COVID-19 list. So some good news there, I guess, although Roberts hasn't played on a single defensive snap for Washington this season. Also, Washington on Tuesday activated safety Jeremy Reeves from the practice squad as a COVID-19 replacement. Washington did the same thing with Reeves for this past Sunday afternoon's game, the 27-20 loss to the Dallas Cowboys at FedEx Field. So if you are keeping score Washington now has the following players on the reserve COVID-19 list. Jonathan Allen, Montez Sweat, Kendall Fuller, Tim Settle, James Smith-Williams, Casey Tuhill, William Bradley King, David Mayo, Kalik Hudson, and Tameric Hemingway. Ten Washington players are on the reserve COVID-19 list. Nine of the ten players are defensive players. The Washington football team is in the midst of a COVID-19 mess. Washington last Wednesday put Montez Sweat on the reserve COVID-19 list. Washington last Friday put Kalik Hudson on the reserve COVID-19 list, although he was already on the reserve injured list. Washington this past Saturday put James Smith-Williams and Daryl Roberts on the reserve COVID-19 list. Washington on Sunday morning, hours before the loss to the Cowboys, put Casey Tuhill on the reserve COVID-19 list. Washington on Monday afternoon put four more players on the reserve COVID-19 list. Jonathan Allen, David Mayo, and two practice squad players in William Bradley King 
and Tamara Hemingway. We then, on Monday evening, had multiple reports that a Tier 3 staffer for the Washington football team had tested positive for the Omicron variant of COVID-19, becoming the first known case of someone in the NFL having the Omicron variant of COVID-19. And then Washington on Tuesday afternoon put two more players on the reserve COVID-19 list, Kendall Fuller and Tim Settle. This is like a nightmare right now, but this is not unique to Washington. Uh, The NFL as a whole has been inundated with positive COVID-19 tests in recent days. The NFL right now is getting walloped by COVID-19. I can only assume that this has to do with all of the variants of COVID-19, but who knows? You know, there's so much with this freaking pandemic that we do not know. So, you know, we speculate and we think and we pontificate, but we just don't know anything beyond the NFL right now is struggling when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic. But the timing of this COVID-19 outbreak for Washington really could not be worse, given that the team is fighting for its postseason life, given that the team has this big game at the Eagles this Sunday afternoon. And of course, making things worse are the many injuries on offense that the Washington football team is dealing with. Washington has an offense that has been ravaged by injury and a defense that has been ravaged by COVID-19. Happy holidays, everyone. Uh, We'll see what Ron Rivera has to say on Wednesday at his post-practice press conference, which, barring the unforeseen, he'll be doing. Uh, By the way, with Washington's COVID-19 situation on defense, did you see who Washington signed on Tuesday? Washington on Tuesday signed edge defender Nate Orchard off the Green Bay Packers practice squad. Remember Nate Orchard? Uh, So Nate Orchard was taken by the Cleveland Browns in the second round of the 2015 NFL draft out of Utah. Washington signed Nate Orchard on November 27th, 2019. This in the lead up to what ended up being Washington's final win in the team's 3-13 2019 season. What was that final win? The 29-21 win at the Carolina Panthers in week 13 in Ron Rivera's final game as Panthers head coach. Now, if you remember the circumstances for this game, Ryan Kerrigan was inactive due to a concussion, uh, ending streaks of 139 consecutive regular season games and regular season starts to begin his career. Yeah, this was the game that ended the Ryan Kerrigan Ironman streak. And so Washington gave significant playing time to two edge defenders in Nate Orchard and Chris Odom. And each guy made big plays in this game. Orchard finished with a sack, two quarterback hits, two tackles for loss, and a fumble recovery in playing on 42 Washington defensive snaps in his Washington debut. He, on the Panthers' final offensive drive, had not only the game-sealing fumble recovery, but also tackled running back Christian McCaffrey for a one-yard loss on a shotgun handoff run on a second and goal at the two. Now, Orchard didn't play a ton the rest of that 2019 season. Orchard totaled uh, just 76 defensive snaps over Washington's final four games of the 2019 regular season. Washington in March 2020 did re-sign Nate Orchard as an unrestricted free agent. He, in the 2020 regular season, spent time on Washington's practice squad. So welcome back, Nate Orchard. Uh, Orchard, by the way, prior to his initial signing with Washington in November 2019, had had 10 free agent workouts uh, through the first two-thirds of the 2019 season and had been installing windows. Yes, he was doing window installation 
uh, before being signed by Washington and helping to end Ron Rivera's tenure as Panthers head coach. Now Ron has signed Nate Orchard two years later. All right, so we on Tuesday had Washington's bad COVID-19 situation getting even worse, and we had bad news regarding Logan Thomas. It turns out that he did tear his ACL. Uh, there have been a lot of twists and turns with this Logan Thomas knee injury saga. So Washington on December 8th put Logan Thomas on the reserve injured list for the second time this season, ending his season. Logan Thomas suffered a knee injury in the win at the Las Vegas Raiders in week 13. The initial belief was that Logan had not suffered a torn ACL, but we on Tuesday morning had multiple reports that Logan did in fact suffer a torn ACL, although the reports weren't all the same. Uh, Let me read them to you. So ESPN NFL insider Adam Schefter tweeted, quote, further testing revealed that WFT tight end Logan Thomas does in fact have a torn ACL as the team initially feared per source. Thomas is expected to undergo surgery this week and return in time for the 2022 season, end quote. Washington football team insider Ben Standig of The Athletic DC tweeted, quote, tight end Logan Thomas did suffer a more serious knee injury than Washington initially anticipated and could have ACL surgery in the near future, source confirms, end quote. Washington football team insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post tweeted, quote, further tests on Washington tight end Logan Thomas's knee revealed he did, in fact, damage his ACL, despite an earlier belief to the contrary, a source confirmed, end quote. So I don't know if I'm being, like, too technical, but each tweet does say something different. Schefter says that Logan Thomas did suffer a torn ACL. Standing says that Logan Thomas suffered a more serious knee injury than Washington initially anticipated, and Logan could have ACL surgery in the near future. And Javala says that Logan Thomas did, in fact, damage his ACL. So, I don't know. I mean, everything's a little different here, but the gist does seem to be that Logan Thomas did suffer a torn ACL. And assuming that he did suffer a torn ACL, uh, that's awful news. You know, hopefully Logan Thomas is good to go for the start of next season, but that to me is far from a guarantee. You know, you never know with these ACL tears. I tell you, this season really ended up being a rough season for Logan Thomas off his great 2020 season. Logan Thomas this season missed six consecutive games in being on the reserve injured list the first time. Uh, He was on injured reserve from October 6th to November 29th due to a hamstring injury that he suffered in the win at the Atlanta Falcons in week four. So Logan Thomas this season played in just six games. He had 18 receptions for 196 yards and three touchdowns on 25 targets. It's a good thing that he got his money. I'm glad that Logan Thomas got paid this past summer. Washington football team this past July 28th announced the signing of Logan Thomas to a three-year contract extension. The contract extension is a three-year $24 million deal, $8.1 million guaranteed at signing. He was due to be an unrestricted free agent this coming offseason. Now, you know, he's got himself some financial security. So good for Logan Thomas there. You know, he was so good in the 2020 season. Logan Thomas finished the 2020 regular season with 72 receptions for 670 yards and six touchdowns on 110 targets over 16 games. Logan Thomas became just the third tight end in Washington history to have a regular season with at least 70 receptions, at least 650 receiving yards, and at least five receiving touchdowns. He joined Jordan Reed 2015 
and Chris Cooley, 2005. Now, obviously, plenty of guys come back from ACL tears and do well, and hopefully that happens here with Logan Thomas. But understand that the 2022 season will be Logan Thomas's age 31 season. You know, he's not some guy in his earlier mid-20s here. He's already in his 30s, and he this season has suffered two serious leg injuries. There, to me, is a real opportunity here for these other Washington tight ends to emerge. The other Washington tight ends, of course, are Ricky Seals-Jones, John Bates, and Samus Reyes. But I'm thinking in particular of John Bates. If Bates can assert himself down the stretch this season, he could be Washington's top tight end going into next season. Uh, Ricky Seals-Jones missed three consecutive games recently due to the hip injury. Uh, He has had some drops. Uh, Samus Reyes is just so raw. I think that John Bates has a real opportunity right now. But get well soon, Logan Thomas. Talented guy, good dude, hard worker, really good story. And uh, unfortunately, it does appear as if he did suffer a torn ACL uh, in that win at the Raiders. Geez, can we please stop with all of this bad Washington football team news, including another bombshell report from the Washington Post regarding the workplace misconduct scandal. Did Dan Snyder interfere with the Beth Wilkinson investigation? And wait till you hear just how ridiculous Dan's feud with Bruce Allen has gotten. I'll get to all of that after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, still to come on the show, two special guests talking Washington football team, former Washington defensive lineman Kedrick Goldston on actual football, and sports business expert Marty Conway on the Washington football team's problem with its fan base. Of course, the Washington football team's problem with its fan base is a function of many things, perhaps principal among them, the owner. 
First off, happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Yes, Danny. Happy Thanksgiving. Dan Snyder, he may well be the least popular major figure in all of North American sports. I mean, think about it. Who else in terms of major figures in North American sports is less popular, has a lower approval rating than Dan Snyder? Uh, And we on Tuesday afternoon got another brick in the wall uh, that is the unpopularity of Dan Snyder. It had been a while since the Washington Post had come out with one of its lengthy pieces on the Washington football team's workplace misconduct scandal. And so we got a lengthy piece on the Washington football team's workplace misconduct scandal. The piece is by Will Hobson and Liz Clark. The piece is very long and hits on a number of items, but the two most notable items for our purposes have to do with Dan Snyder. And the biggest item is this. Danny Boy allegedly worked to disrupt Beth Wilkinson's investigation into workplace misconduct for the Washington football team. Uh, Dan was supposed to go along with the investigation, but according to this piece, he worked against the investigation. I know, shock face. So first, some background. It was about a year ago at this time. In fact, it was during the Washington football team's 23-17 win at the then 11-0 Pittsburgh Steelers last season. So December 7th, 2020, that the Washington Post reported that Dan Snyder's legal team earlier in the day had filed an emergency motion saying that Dan planned to intervene in a legal dispute over which details surrounding a confidential settlement from 2009 could become public. What was the 2009 confidential agreement about? Well, the New York Times had an article that came out on December 20th, 2020, referencing an allegation that Dan Snyder had sexually harassed a former female team employee in 2009. According to the article, two investigations conducted in 2009, one by the team, another by an outside law firm hired by the team, said that they were unable to substantiate the woman's claim that Vadani had accosted her in April 2009 on a flight to Washington from Las Vegas. The team fired the woman because the team said that she lied to the team's lawyers. But to avoid any potential negative publicity if the woman sued Dan Snyder, the team paid her a financial settlement and five people, including Dan and the accuser, signed non-disclosure agreements. The Washington Post last December 22nd, so December 22nd, 2020, reported that the financial settlement was for a staggering $1.6 million and that the alleged incident had occurred on Dan's private plane while flying back from the Academy of Country Music Awards in Las Vegas. So fast forward to this Washington Post piece that came out on Tuesday afternoon saying that Dan Snyder allegedly worked to disrupt Beth Wilkinson's investigation into workplace misconduct for the Washington football team. The biggest instance of Dan allegedly doing this, per the piece, is the following. Quote, in July 2020, just a few days after prominent D.C. attorney Beth Wilkinson began investigating allegations of widespread sexual harassment in the Washington football team workplace, she learned of a decade-old allegation of sexual misconduct against team owner Daniel Snyder. 
Snyder had for years privately denied the woman's claims. But the existence of an allegation against him, which had been kept secret by a confidential $1.6 million settlement, had the potential to rock a franchise already reeling from scandal. A few weeks later, Wilkinson sought to interview the former team employee who had made the accusation, according to people familiar with the investigation. Then Snyder and his team stepped in. His attorneys attempted to prevent Wilkinson from speaking to Snyder's accuser, according to a letter the woman's attorney wrote to Snyder's lawyers that was filed in federal court. The Washington Post has not reviewed this letter, which was filed under seal as part of a legal dispute between Wilkinson and a former lawyer for the team. The letter was described by people with knowledge of its contents. According to these people, the woman's lawyer, Brendan Sullivan, accused Snyder's lawyers of offering his client more money beyond the $1.6 million the team paid in 2009 if she agreed not to speak to anyone about her allegations against Snyder and her settlement with the team. In court filings, Wilkinson later described phone calls to Sullivan from Snyder's lawyers as an attempt to silence the 2009 accuser. Wilkinson and Sullivan declined to comment. Snyder's attorneys, in their own sealed letter filed in court, denied trying to block the interview and offering the woman more money, according to people familiar with that letter. In a statement released after this story published online, A. Scott Bolden of the law firm Reed Smith, which represents Snyder and the team, said, quote, untrue. It did not happen. Absolutely no effort was made by me or any Reed Smith lawyers to dissuade anyone from speaking with Beth Wilkinson or otherwise cooperating with her investigation, nor was any money offered to anyone not to cooperate. Anyone suggesting something to the contrary is lying, end quote. Snyder declined an interview request. Lawyers representing Snyder and the team declined interview requests. Wilkinson ultimately did interview Snyder's accuser, according to court records, but the revelation that Snyder was accused of trying to block a witness from participating in the NFL's investigation, raises new concerns about Commissioner Roger Goodell's decision to keep confidential any report or investigative findings produced by Wilkinson, a departure from how the league has handled investigations in recent years, end quote. So, according to this Washington Post article, Dan Snyder's attorneys attempted to prevent Beth Wilkinson from speaking to Dan's accuser, in fairness to the Danny, uh, his lawyer does deny this accusation. Another instance of Dan Snyder allegedly having worked to disrupt Beth Wilkinson's investigation into workplace misconduct for the Washington football team. Again, I read to you from this Washington Post piece that came out on Tuesday afternoon. Quote, private investigators working on Snyder's behalf showed up uninvited at the homes of several former employees or contacted their friends and relatives, according to these former employees or their attorneys, acts many of them viewed as intimidation aimed at discouraging former employees from participating in the NFL's investigation, end quote. All of this makes Dan Snyder look even worse, obviously. None of this is surprising, obviously. 
This latest piece by the Washington Post on the Washington football team's workplace misconduct scandal will reignite the cries for the NFL to release the report, right? To put out some kind of a report on the findings of the Beth Wilkinson investigation. And look, I am all for such a report being released. I am all for transparency with this Beth Wilkinson investigation. At the same time, I am not holding my breath on this transparency ever being realized. The NFL has zero interest in putting out any kind of actual report on the findings of the Beth Wilkinson investigation. Perhaps Congress's involvement in all of this could force the NFL's hand uh, to some degree, but you know, all has been quiet on the congressional involvement front in the Washington football team's workplace misconduct scandal in recent weeks. Dan Snyder's and the NFL strategy with this whole workplace misconduct scandal has been to deny and delay and just hope that it all goes away. Hey, there's a rhyming key for you. Deny and delay and just hope that it all goes away. That is the strategy that has been employed by Dan Snyder and the NFL with this Washington football team workplace misconduct scandal. And no way do I see that strategy changing, especially because with each passing Washington Post expose on this Washington football team workplace misconduct scandal, I do think that you get at least some people who grow tired of the scandal and grow fatigued with reading about and hearing about the scandal, especially as we're in the midst of football season, as we're in the midst of a Washington football team playoff push. I do think that there is a segment of the Washington football team fan base that says, oh, geez, this again, can we please just enjoy our football? You know, and I'm not saying that that's the right reaction, but I do believe that that is a reaction and it may well be a growing reaction. I would, though, say this. Each Washington Post expose on the scandal, each pullback of a layer on the onion that is this scandal, which, remember, was broken by the Washington Post with its initial article on the workplace misconduct scandal all the way back in July 2020, uh, makes things look worse, not better, okay? Each piece from the Post makes the scandal and Dan Snyder look worse not better. And if Dan Snyder actually worked to disrupt Beth Wilkinson's investigation into a workplace misconduct scandal for his team, at what point does the NFL, i.e. the other NFL owners, just say, you know, the heck with this guy. Just get him out, okay? He's just not worth the trouble. Like, theoretically, there's a point at which that would happen, right? There has to be. Maybe we're still not near that point, but there is a point at which the other NFL owners say, just get out already, okay? We're tired of having to clean up your messes, okay? I do wonder if the owners are at all nearing such a point, you know? I do wonder what the other owners are thinking about all of this right now. This scandal just won't go away. We thought this scandal was over. The scandal got reignited by the leaked Bruce Allen emails, and here we are now with another Washington Post expose that has come out. The scandal won't go away, and the scandal keeps looking worse, not better. Dan Snyder keeps looking worse, not better. The NFL doesn't need 
Dan Snyder. The NFL has never needed Dan Snyder. Are we at all nearing the point at which the NFL tells Dan Snyder to go away for good? Because that's probably the only way that Dan Snyder is ever going to be ousted as owner of the Washington football team. The NFL, the other owners saying, all right, we're done with this guy. Get him out. You know, I'm not sure that there's much of anything that could happen from any other entity to remove Dan Snyder as owner, other than the owners themselves saying, Denny boy, get out. Now, I'm not counting on that happening, but I do wonder about that happening. Also, in this latest Washington Post piece on the Washington football team's workplace misconduct scandal is this absurd details on the Dan Snyder-Bruce Allen feud. So as you likely know, Dan Snyder and Bruce Allen now hate each other. Two guys who had been two peas in a pod now cannot stand each other. So a little bit of background. Washington's ownership turmoil of 2020 and 2021, of course, resulted in Dan Snyder buying out his three disgruntled minority investors, Dwight Shaw, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith. Uh, this in a transaction that was finalized this past April 2nd. The ugliest aspect of the ownership turmoil by far was the alleged smear campaign perpetrated on Dan Snyder. Dan, in a lawsuit filed on August 7th, 2020, accused an online media company, MEAWW.com, of accepting payment in exchange for publishing defamatory rumors. This was all in the wild lead up to the publishing of the Washington Post's initial article on the Washington football team's workplace misconduct scandal. That article came out on July 16th, 2020, implicated as one of the financial benefactors in the alleged smear campaign against Dan Snyder, was one of the disgruntled minority owners, Dwight Shaw. It was in one of the court documents in Dan's defamation lawsuit against the online media company that we got this fascinating nugget. John A. Moog, who was the Baltimore-based financial consultant hired by the minority owners to facilitate the selling of their stakes in the team, had exchanged a number of phone calls texts, and emails with Bruce Allen. And according to Team Dan Snyder, uh, the texts and emails proved that the two were, quote, focused on negative publicity directed at Snyder, end quote. Dan this past April 15th filed a motion of discovery against Bruce, seeking to go through his text messages and documents that allegedly led to the smear campaign against Dan. We also have had the revelation that Dan Snyder shortchanged Bruce Allen. Uh, this came to light via a federal court filing that was disclosed as part of the ongoing discovery process of Dan on April 15th, having filed this motion of discovery against Bruce. It turns out that per the filing, Dan shortly after firing Bruce in December 2019, balked at paying Bruce what Bruce was contractually owed. Read the filing in part, quote, after terminating Mr. Allen's position with the team, Mr. Snyder forced him to initiate legal proceedings to obtain the last of his contractually protected compensation. Specifically, on April 1st, 2020, Mr. Snyder attempted to use the coronavirus pandemic as an opportunity to reduce the amount still owed to Mr. Allen. This forced Mr. Allen to retain legal counsel and initiate a proceeding through the NFL to obtain his compensation, 
which he did, end quote. So with all of that as a setup, we now have this. The Washington Post, in this lengthy piece that came out on Tuesday afternoon, said that Dan Snyder got mad that Bruce Allen did not send Dan a congratulatory text in January 2020 when Dan hired Ron Rivera as Washington head coach. Quote, in January 2020, after the news conference announcing Rivera's hire, according to People, Snyder learned that Allen had sent a congratulatory text to Rivera. Snyder was insulted, these people said, that he didn't receive a similar text from Allen, whom Snyder had fired a few weeks before. Later that year, the team, citing the pandemic, attempted to get out of paying Allen all of the money he was owed under his contract. Allen fought back, and Snyder agreed to pay his full salary. But in a message sent to Allen's lawyers over settlement terms, one of Snyder's lawyers included a condition that Allen wouldn't agree to meet according to text messages reviewed by the Post. Quote, in addition, I understand that Mr. Allen has agreed to send a text message to Mr. Snyder stating, congrats on the hire, end quote. Snyder's attorney wrote in July 2020, seven months after Snyder hired Rivera. Allen's lawyers resolved the pay dispute, but he never sent this text, according to a person with knowledge of the case, end quote. (laughs) How about that? How about that? Danny Boy got peeved that Brucifer didn't text Danny Boy, congrats on hiring Ron Rivera, who, of course, was essentially Bruce's replacement. A, why would someone text someone who just fired him or her, congrats on hiring his or her replacement? That's just odd. B, how petty and insecure is Dan that he got jealous that Ron got a congratulatory text from Bruce, but Dan didn't? C, how absurd is it that Dan's lawyers included a condition that Bruce send a text message to Dan stating, congrats on the hire. Like, the lawyers actually included that as a condition. How ridiculous is that? Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yeah! How whacked out truly is Dan Snyder? Unreal. And how all-time great is this Dan Snyder-Bruce Allen feud? This isn't good versus evil. This is evil versus evil. Instead of saying, may the best man win, we say, may the worst person lose even more. What a circus. Hey, it's December. Why talk about a playoff push for the Washington football team when you have its never-ending drama to talk about? Well, with all of that said, let us talk some actual football. All right, let's talk some football. Time now for the first of our two special guests talking Washington football team. He is former Washington defensive lineman Kedrick Golston. Uh, Kedrick was taken by Washington in the sixth round of the 2006 NFL draft out of Georgia. He played for Washington for 11 seasons, 2006 through 2016, and it's great to have him on the Al Galdi podcast. Kedrick, really nice to talk to you, man. How are you? I'm doing well. And yourself, Al? Doing well. Excited with uh, what's going on with the Washington football team on the field right now. Although, uh, boy, nothing's easy right now 
Uh, what do you make of the state of our six and seven football team? A ton of injuries and now all of these COVID-19 related absences. A disappointing loss to the Dallas Cowboys at FedEx Field last Sunday afternoon. But Washington is currently in possession of the NFC's third and final wildcard spot. You played on three different Washington teams that rallied to make the playoffs, the 2007, 2012, and 2015 teams. Does this season's Washington team feel like a playoff team to you? You know, it's it's hard to say. I mean, as when they were going into the bye at, at two and six, um, you know, I could start to kind of feel, you know, if they came out of the bye and had some success, um, you know, they might go on one of those runs like I was a part of in, in 2012. And they come out and nobody gave them a chance against Tampa and they kind of shocked the universe and, and beat a good, you know, Buccaneers team. Anytime you can beat Tom Brady, I mean, that's that's something you can hang your hat on. And, you know, they go on a, you know, four-game heater. And uh, you're, you're thinking, hey, the way they're playing from from uh, offense, defense, special team standpoint, they're not pretty, but, hey, they know who they are. They're going out there. They're running the ball. They're, they're playing a lot better defense. And, um, you know, it gives them a shot to win a football game. And so, you know, you lead up the Cowboys week and everything's kind of right out there, understanding that, hey, you got the, you know, last wild card place kind of, you know, right there in, in the Catbird seat. But you also have an opportunity to win the division, being that you have these, these remaining games left in the season, playing Philly twice, playing Dallas twice and New York once. And you're down 24 to zero at the half. And, you know, the air is kind of let out of your sails. And, you know, we know they come back and they, they make it respectable from the standpoint of the final score. But you never want a, the Cowboys to come into your home stadium, be up 24 nothing and, uh, and, and lose that and lose a game that kind of way. Yeah, we'll see what the state of Washington's defense ends up being for this Sunday's game at the Philadelphia Eagles, given Washington's COVID-19 situation. But the improvement of Washington's defense since the team's 2-6 and six start really has been impressive. Uh, you know, this defense was a mess over the first eight games, has been so much better lately. Why, to you, has the defense gotten on track? You know, I think that the boring answer of it is, is, you know, you, you have to do the little things defensively in order to, to dominate teams. You know what I mean? Every, you know, you just go back to the hype that was on this defense, rightfully so with the pedigree and, and the rankings they had last year. But when you take a, a deeper dive into, into kind of the statistics, um, you know, they played some poor offenses last year and they dominated poor offensives like like they should do and so they come out playing a first place schedule and and uh, you know they had some turnover on the back end and and you saw a defensive front that was pressing to try to make those plays that we had talked about all offseason and it wasn't until I believe that they were able to kind of go into the bye week really look at what they were doing you know really be honest with themselves without having to worry about the next opponent they was really able to make those little small simple corrections to understand that you know i believe going into this you know going into the philosophy you know coach del rio and, and coach rivera with the horses you had up front you believe that hey we could just rush four you know drop the remainder you know make it hard for teams to pass but like in any in the nfl if an offensive the opposing offense know what you're doing 
they're going to be able to scheme it up. And so we saw a lot of max protecting and quarterback having time to throw the ball. And it's hard to cover in this league, just like it's hard to rush the passer. Since the bye week, and obviously with Montez going out and, and, uh, and Young, you know, done for the season, you saw a lot more creativity in the play calling from, you know, different blitzes, who's coming from where. I think moving Landon down uh, to more in the box allows him to really accentuate his skills as a football player. You know what I mean? And I don't look at it as a slight of, oh, well, we're moving Landon from safety to, to Buffalo Buffalo nickel. Um, here's a guy that's physical that you could tell that really enjoys playing football. And when he's around the line of scrimmage, he's a truly impactful player. You can look at his time, uh, you know, up in New York. And so that's why I think they just more, they're, they're allowing, obviously they have talent, but from a scheme standpoint, they're being way more creative and throwing a lot more at the opposing offenses. And that in turn has allowed, uh, you know, better statistic, uh, statistically and playing better on, on the defense side. We are doing a Bill Callahan-esque deep dive on the Washington <laughs> football team <laughs> with former Washington defensive lineman Kedrick Golston. So you mentioned Chase Young and Montez Sweat. Look, it would be ridiculous to say that Washington is better off without those guys, given how talented they are. But it is undeniable that the improvement for the defense has come with both of those guys being out. Ron Rivera has made it clear that Chase and Montez weren't always adhering to the defensive scheme. What do you make of what has gone on with and without Chase Young and Montez Sweat this season? I just think you have guys playing. And like I said, I'm not going to sit up here. And when you have a guy, second pick of the draft, uh, Sweat, with, with the same measurables, if not better, from a you know physical freak standpoint, you give those guys a lot more leash to go out there and make plays. You know what I mean? So that you might have a guy, I think of Brian Arakpo when uh when, when Jim Haslett came in and, and Arak pretty much had the freedom to rush wherever he wanted to rush and it was the next defensive lineman next to him uh responsibility to make Rack right. You know what I mean? So if Rack went inside uh, at, at the snap of the ball, it was that defensive end or that the defensive tackle next to him responsibility for contain because you understood you wanted to put your playmakers in position to go out there and make plays. The, the thing that helps us and hurts us is from, you know, statistic and a, a production standpoint. I mean, your interior rush guys are just as good you know, if not better statistically than the outside guys. So it's just one of those things where they have to understand that just because you don't make the sack doesn't mean you didn't do your job and, 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 and didn't help the team. And I just saw a lot of guys not rushing as a unit. One guy would win, but somebody might lose contain. And I think with just them taking ownership and, and I'm, you know, the guys that came in for, for Sweat and Young, I mean, let's just be honest, they don't have the pedigree, not that they're not great football players, they're NFL football players that are going out there doing all the things you're asking them to do, but I think they understand it's important for them to work within the framework of the system so that the whole defense is better. Why do you think that Chase Young and Montez Sweat were freelancing? Why do you think they weren't behaving in accordance with the scheme? I don't necessarily, I mean, freelancer sounds like they kind of, I believe that from a coaching standpoint, when you got those type of guys where they have just all the ability in the world, you don't want to overcoach them. Yeah. So to kind of hold them back. But ultimately, you want to give them the freedom to make the best decisions that helps the team and, and that's a that's a that's a growing that's a learning and growing process and that's the, the growing pains of the NFL is you have to understand when you can take a chance and when you can't take a chance. You have to understand the down and distance. And that's why I think 
where these both these guys are obviously you know physical freaks in nature and it still takes time to really learn how to rush the passer in the nfl so like i said you don't want to handcuff them to only play what you call when you call it because they do have that type of ability to take over the game you're just going to have to go through these some of these growing pains of them understanding like oh, that really kind of cost the team there. I shouldn't have necessarily did that at that moment. But in this situation, it might would have been better to do that. And I just think that that communication and that trust and knowing, to me, you can be in a system, but the longer you're, you can understand what the play call is. You can understand where I'm supposed to be. But I think defenses really gel when they really truly understand when the defensive coordinator calls this play, this is what they're trying to stop. This is what they're trying to accomplish. And, and from my experience in my 11 years in, in, in the NFL, when players begin to think and know the why and why the defensive coordinator is calling a certain front, a certain coverage, a certain blitz, it frees them up to understand that, like, oh, he's trying to attack this from an offensive standpoint. So this is what I need to make sure happens regardless of what else happens in the play. This is what I can't let happen, and this is what I can let happen. And I think it frees you up to play a lot faster. So with given all that talent and athletic ability, you know, there's also some, some, some you know, pulling the reins back a little bit and understanding that, you know, we're all good out here, but, it, you know, if you make a mistake or you're not as disciplined as you should be, offenses are good enough to kind of, you know, exploit those weaknesses. Yeah. Know your why, as RG3 told us. Years ago. <laughs> well, we'll have to wait on the book to figure that out. I was going to say, is Kendrick Golston in the RG3 book? I can't wait to find out. Listen, I, I, I would be shocked because I haven't come up in any other thing, so I would be shocked <laughs> if I came up in that. Well, that's probably a good thing that you haven't come up in any other things. Uh, let's let's get to Washington's offense. Everyone has a Taylor Heineke take. Uh, you know, what he is, what he isn't, what he can be, what he can't be. Where is Kedrick Golston on Taylor Heineke? I mean, from, from a fan standpoint and from a former player, I mean, you got to love the guy for just what he goes out there and does for you. You know, I mean, we all know his limitations as a quarterback, um, but that's a hard position to play. Um, he's going to go out there. He's going to lay it on the line for you. I, he plays his best ball when everything around him is broken down and, and things of that nature. And But when things don't go as well, you know, I think Coach Rivera talked about it earlier uh, in the week when, when when they're not able to run the ball and kind of set up that play action game, like any quarterback, he struggles. You know what I mean? You can see that he doesn't have the most powerful arm, but you know he puts some he puts his team and himself in position, you know, to make plays. And that's just you know that's just that's just the reality of the situation. You know what I mean? From an offensive standpoint, you can see um, the OC calling plays that kind of accentuate some of his strengths and trying to hide some of his weaknesses, but you know, defenses are looking at that and they're going to take away what he does well. And, and when, you know, obviously when McLaurin went out with, 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 with the head and um, you're not able to run the ball, that really hampers any offense. And so, you know, I, I think that it wasn't a good game for him because he was never able to really kind of get in his rhythm on what really makes him a good quarterback. But I, I love him. I respect his story. And just you can tell it means something to him. And he really goes out there and competes, you know, down in and down out. And that's why I believe the guys in that locker room believe in him because ultimately you know that some guys are naturally better or worse than others. But what you really want is for a guy to go out there and lay it on the line 
for you and as a as a teammate uh you can respect that and you just you know you know what you're dealing with Washington during its four game winning streak played with leads ran the ball a lot and dominated time of possession. Washington this past Sunday in the loss to the Cowboys got down big early, never had the lead, and ended up having a really bad offensive game. Now, in fairness, we have seen Washington this season win when Taylor Heineke has had a lot of pass attempts. Uh, That's how Washington won over the New York Giants at FedEx Field on Thursday Night Football in Week 2. Can you see Washington winning that way down the stretch, or is the formula of the four-game winning streak the way for Washington to win down the stretch? You know, I think that's the way they're going to win because they're in control and they're able to dictate the teams what it is they want to do. I will tell you, um, I know they got some COVID issues going on, with especially in the defensive uh, end room, and, and I think John Allen uh, tested positive. When their defensive front is at full speed, and I know Young is out for the year, um, I, I like to compare them to uh, 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 they ha- they have a puncher's chance in every single game because if those guys are getting after the quarterback, they can negate any offense, and they have that type of ability with Payne, Ionitis, Allen. You know, hopefully Sweat comes back and he can get back in his groove. Um, they have that type of ability to beat anybody if they're getting after the passer and playing like we believe that they can play from a potential standpoint. But ultimately, if you look at most great defensive teams and teams that are led by their defense, I, I go back to one most recently uh, in the Seattle Seahawks when they won the Super Bowl. Um they run the ball to control the clock to allow their defense to rest as much as possible. And there's one there's one unspoken thing that um that you know you don't really hear much about is that offenses get impatient you know what i mean so when they're sitting on the sideline and it's been a four-minute drive a six-minute drive eight-minute drive a 10-minute drive all the while the offense wants to try to get the ball to go score points you know what i mean so they get impatient and then you kind of know from a defensive standpoint they feel like they have to score on this drive because they don't know when the next time it is they're going to get the ball so i believe especially with this team understanding who they are who they're not um they're gonna have to be able to run the ball or at least give the illusion and, and be respectful enough in the running game so teams have to honor it in order to one to control the ball to give their defense a break to be able to go out there and play 100 miles an hour to, to uh, and um but yeah that's the formula excellent Kedrick it's great to talk to you man happy holidays and thanks so much for your time have a good one Al All right, so let's get into this issue of the Washington football team and its fan base. Uh, FedEx Field, of course, was overtaken by Cowboys fans this past Sunday afternoon for Washington's 27-20 loss to Dallas. And yes, FedEx Field being overtaken by opposing teams' fans is nothing new, but this takeover, to me, uh, stands out as being among the more galling. Uh, This was the biggest Washington-Dallas game in years. This was a game to which the Washington football team basically pleaded fans to attend. But this also was a game for which the Washington football team jacked up ticket prices. And this was a game for which a number of tickets were sold before Washington's four-game winning streak. But whatever the reasons, Cowboys fans took over FedEx Field. Now, I don't blame any Washington fans for not going to a Washington game. Ticket prices are exorbitant. Parking isn't cheap. The commute isn't easy. And the FedEx field experience has been universally ripped for years. But what I do want to get to is the bottom of this Washington football team attendance problem, which, of course, is a part of an overall problem 
for the Washington football team with its fan base. Is there any realistic hope of the problem being fixed or at least significantly alleviated? Very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now a special guest. He is sports business expert Marty Conway. Uh, Marty is an adjunct professor at Georgetown. He is a man who knows sports business quite well. Uh, Marty spent 15 years working in Major League Baseball. He worked for the Orioles. He worked for the Texas Rangers. He worked for the commissioner's office. Marty also has worked for AOL. Marty, it's great to talk to you again. How are you? I'm good, Al. Good to be with you. Appreciate you coming on again. So as someone who understands the business of sports so well, what do you make of this continued phenomenon of the Washington football team, maybe more than any other team in major pro sports, having its home games taken over by opposing teams' fans? Yeah, well, it's certainly disturbing if you're, um, you know, the home team. Obviously, if you're if you're connected to the home team, the, particularly in football, you know, the head coach. And we heard this from Ron Rivera, you know, a few days ago. We've heard it from other coaches. You know, if you've been to games in Pittsburgh or Baltimore, places like that, you know, they play certain music at certain times. Um, you know, even the Caps games, you know, they they have their own sort of signature approach on that. Um, and and it's you know it's a huge problem when that when it gets to this point and it has happened with other teams um you know i can recall other stadiums for example camden yards right up the road you know when the orioles were in their really difficult days it was almost like a neutral court you know there'd be fans from philadelphia yankee fans met fans you know whatever um but that sort of subsided when the team got better but in this case look i think at the end of the day um, now we know that 25 years after the stadium opened, that it was a bad decision to go out there. Uh, in 1996, opening, if you look at, if you go back, and it's almost like trades in sports. If you go back later over a length of time and look at them, you can properly evaluate them. But at the end of the day, in the 90s, baseball teams were going from the suburbs to downtown. And for whatever reason, the football team was moving out to the suburbs and in hindsight a terrible move um and a lot of other things happened in society in the meantime with the population and and how people viewed um athletic events live events and so the culmination of all that has brought them here where most of the tickets are available to individual buyers Uh, a lot of people buy them as brokers and break them up and sell them in various ways so um It's a really difficult problem for them, and it will clearly be rectified. One of the ways it will be rectified is when and if they do get a new location and they figure out what really works for their best fans. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about that. Do you think that a new stadium for the Washington football team, whenever that stadium comes, will significantly lessen the problem of Washington home games being overtaken by opposing teams' fans or not necessarily? Well, not necessarily, but it is always a reset, right? If you if you get it done properly, whether it's, you know, the right location, whether it's, you know, in D.C., by the river, whatever that's going to be in the ambiance and the ability to easily get to and from that. And the second thing today is increasingly you look at the real estate around stadiums. Um, if you look at the, uh, the new Atlanta Stadium and baseball, the battery, if you look at St. Louis, you look at what they've done with the Rams, it's about putting the real estate around it that can have shops and restaurants and other kinds of ambiances so that people who do want to come and maybe not go in the stadium 
can participate, but the owner or the owner's development corp is getting a piece of that. So be very careful about where you go. It could happen, but look, there are deeper problems, and, and you and I both know that, with the franchise that the owner has brought on himself. And so not only would it take a reset of a new location, I think it would take a complete reset of the organization at the highest levels. They're on their second management team, replacement management team now, and they're trying to do things, but I think we can see that the damage that's been done over the longest period of time has taken its toll on the credibility of any new management team that comes in. And so the combination of winning, it's a combination of reset, the stadium location, it's a combination of reset, the management structure, and perhaps the ownership structure as well, that I think would at least give uh, a new situation more of a fighting chance. Yeah, and you just, of course, hit on what is maybe the biggest issue of all. The issue of the owner, uh, the Washington football team's attendance problem, is a function of a larger problem for the team with its fan base. And the crux of that problem in so many ways is Dan Snyder. Uh, The unpopularity of the owner cannot be overstated. Do you think that there is a realistic path by which Dan Snyder could ever rehab his image? Or is his image, is his persona just unfixable? Well, I think that that's an interesting question. But when you look at, so there's a couple things. Number one, we forget. We're two years, two seasons basically past the pandemic. And when we were in 2019, we were talking, actively talking about the challenges of live event sports. Pro football attendance was down. College football attendance was way down. There were a number of things going on. But before I get to that point, let me tell you, let me just say, it's possible, because if you look at two teams that have had a renaissance, quote-unquote, in terms of attendance, it's interesting. It's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Cincinnati Bengals. And obviously, we know what happened in Tampa, right? You signed Tom Brady, you bring in some other players, Bruce Arians, etc. Nobody was uh, as... Some people were as unpopular as the Glazers in Tampa for a long time. And then in Cincinnati, there was kind of a feeling that the Brown family wasn't interested in spending money. You know, numbers were way down. Joe Burrow comes along. He's a threat. They get they get it together. I think their attendance is up by about 15000 per game. So you can do it, but it's going to take a lot of effort, and I don't see that kind of effort being put forth. But having said that, could it be rehabilitated? It's possible, but it will take a long time. I think it will take sort of this – look, how many times have they missed on the franchise quarterback – and we know how important that is. Um, you know, I'm just reflecting back on Roland Eamon, who passed away a couple of days ago. And he used to actually go out and create trades because the marketing team wanted new activity. He would say, hey, what do you think? That'll get them going. I mean, literally, I think you have to look at a reset, not only from the personnel, but perhaps even from the ownership for this to, to have a fighting chance. We're discussing the Washington football team's problem with the team's fan base with sports business expert Marty Conway. So with the latest management team for the Washington football team's business operations, if you're Jason Wright and you have been tasked with trying to fix the team's dysfunctional relationship with the team's fans, including this attendance problem, what realistically can be done? Like if you're Jason Wright right now, what are you trying to do? Yeah, the first thing is to say I'm sorry. Like, I think one of the things that they have yet to do through all of this is to get a mea culpa from the, t- the top. Um, look, you know, the previous 
management team was let go because, in part because they wanted to talk about the fact that the um, waiting list didn't really exist and there were some other things like that. And so until the organization can literally come to grips with the issues that everybody... It's like security, right? It's like one of the things about going to a game. If security, you know, if there are problems around the stadium, you've got to deal with the obvious, right? And you would you'd put some security personnel, you would deal with that, lights in the parking lot, number to make people feel comfortable. And I think this has some similarities to that. And that is to finally come to grips with all that's happened over the past several years and come out and say, look, we're really sorry about this. We settled with all these other folks that had grievances against us. We're not going to allow this to happen anymore. We have a new way forward. They've actually been trying to go forward without really coming to grips with their past. And I, so I think that's number one. I don't think that's going to necessarily sell more tickets for them, but it's going to put them on a ground, uh, on a solid ground because sponsors, other people that are spending large amounts of money, they have a risk when they put money into your franchise, whether they're a sponsor or a media organization, because when it blows up for the team, it blows up in their face too. So that's number one, if it's possible. Number two, Look, I think they're trying to do some of these things. They're reducing the capacity. I think now they're talking about the capacity is something under 70,000, when for the longest time, at least prior to 2019, it was listed at 82,000. Shrinking that capacity, making it more intimate as much as possible. But then they've got to do some other things. Look, I think charging as much as they do for parking is certainly a problem. I think people are put off. If you look at what people are put off by, and this is what Atlanta did, when they opened their new stadium, they brought the prices for concessions down to reasonable, what people think is reasonable for water or for a hot dog. Because at the end of the day, most of the money is made in the seating bowl, upper and lower, in the suites and in the premium seats. It's not made on food and beverage. I mean, there is some take there, but to, to back all of that off and just say, we're resetting in some of these areas that are really about the fan experience, then I think it would give them a fighting chance and if the team on the field and the front office and the coach were able to turn it around at the same time, then that would be a confluence. So I know they're trying to go in some of those directions, but I think they keep running into themselves uh, almost at every turn. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, what about the name? I mean, you obviously understand the concepts of brand identity and brand loyalty. How much of a factor in the team's continued problems with its fans is the fact that the team's name no longer is Redskins? Uh, you know, a year ago, I would have said, I would have given some acknowledgement to that, but I, I think people have generally moved on from that, or at least, you know, the people that you would want. There is always going to be a percentage of people that are going to hang on. Look, we're going to see what happens with the Cleveland situation, moving on from the Indians to the Guardians, right? I think there's a lot of similarities to what the Washington football team is doing, trying to move on from the Redskins to something else. Now, again, in terms of a catalyst for change, I think that name change is probably coming. I think we're on the I think we're on the doorstep of having that whether it's prior to the end of this season or whether it's immediately after that. I don't think they want to see this get drowned in the Super Bowl discussion when two other teams are playing. So, I think it can be a catalyst for going forward, but I think if they study carefully what happened in Cleveland, make sure that you have your trademarks in place, make sure that you don't have a local problem, make sure that it's not something that people are going to deride. I think that would give them an opportunity 
to be part of that reset. So, But I think the longer this goes on with the Washington football team name, which clearly is an interim step, I think the longer it goes on, the less people will be concerned about the change from Redskins to something else because they're not going from that. They're sort of taking the interim step at WFT as to whatever they're going to be. But I, I do think we're probably four or five, maybe six weeks away. I think that would be the ideal time to do it if they can clear up any trademark issues they have. That's interesting. Jason Wright in June and July said that the Washington football team's permanent name would be revealed in early 2022. I think most people took that to mean revealed after the Super Bowl, but you're thinking, no, the best time to do this would actually be in the lead up to the Super Bowl. Uh, well, I think, look, if you're looking to get the most attention as possible, I, look, I think you can plan anything for March and April, but at the end of the day, that's the off season. There's going to be a lot more interest, plus you have access to your fans still coming to games, right? If you had 60,000 people coming and those are access to leads of people to buy new tickets or do new things, you start doing it in March and April, how many people do you think are going to come out to to an event in order to, to do that? So I think it's possible, but it's always helpful, Al, to sell next season while this season is still going on. And it doesn't matter what sport you're talking about. And so I think it would give them opportunity to have another bite at the apple in the last two or three weeks before they get to the playoffs, when if they're especially if they're not in it, so timing I think is important because I think you could generate some additional business if you did it prior to the end of the season or maybe right at the tail end of the season. Uh, while I have you, I do want to get your take on the MLB lockout, which started on December second. You worked in it. Major League Baseball for a decade and a half. So we know that the relationship between MLB and the MLB Players Association is not good. We know that the issues between the sides and terms of negotiations for a new collective bargaining agreement are many. Do you think that the lockout will end up costing MLB games in the 2022 regular season? Well, having been a part of a strike, not a lockout, I was working for the Rangers when the players went on strike uh, in August and canceled that World Series that year. I mean, I I still have nightmares about that when you talk about missing games, because I remember that specifically. And that was because the owners and players had decided prior to the season to to continue to negotiate on the old deal. And ultimately, the owners got burned by that. And so they made that decision then. That's not going to happen again. And so any other time players and owners have not been under an agreement, owners have instituted a lockout so they don't put themselves in that position. Um, Now, do I feel like they're going to miss regular season games? I don't. I do think that ultimately there's so much money. This is a $10, $11 billion industry now. There's so much money at stake on both sides that they could come to some sort of agreement. And perhaps that's what's happened, Al, over the last two, is the players, I think, have lost ground on the last two collective bargaining agreements. And I think they're looking at this now and saying, this is our chance to get this back. As you mentioned, Bruce Meyer, there's some new people involved in the negotiations. And I think there's a sense, whenever that happens, having been in some collective bargaining situations, when there's new people and new personalities you know, there was a there was a feature story in the Athletic about two or three days before the lockout. The feature was on Bruce Meyer, and I I, always, I looked at that ominously and said, why would the union want to have a, 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 a long feature story about their lead negotiator two or three days prior? Well, because they wanted to prove a point. They wanted to communicate to all the players that they were going to be 
difficult. They were going to be tough to get a deal with. So I do think for that standpoint, but I think when you get into January, I think they'll start bargaining in real earnest. And I think the time starts to click away towards a middle of February settlement. Because remember, a year ago, when we had a similar situation prior to the COVID season, they negotiated, negotiated. I think they had about three weeks of a sort of almost an experimental spring training. And the players didn't like that. The players found that difficult. They thought they were susceptible to injury. And so they want to have their own timeline. So I think from a timing standpoint, I think we'd be looking at early to mid-February to perhaps settle, save some spring training games, save the regular season. But I, I don't think losing regular season games in late March, uh, I, I don't see that happening in this case. Maybe the biggest issue between MLB and the MLBPA is this issue of years of team control on players. Uh, teams, generally speaking, have six years of team control on players prior to them hitting free agency. But because so many teams now are in on analytics and understand the aging curve, and because MLB has PED testing, a number of players are not finding free agency to be as bountiful uh, as those players want. If you are MLB, to what extent are you willing to concede on the six years of team control? Well, this is, look, this is what they call the reserve period, and this goes way back out to Kurt Flood, right? This yeah. is the whole reserve clause, reserve period. This is something that baseball owners feel really surely about, which is to have a specific period of time in order to monetize that person, so to speak, and get the best value. So I'm not that optimistic that the owners are willing to curtail that, say, back to five years. I think they'll come up with some sort of age number because, again, this is where the players miscalculated over the last two collective bargaining agreements. They were so focused on the lack of a salary cap and other elements like that. Major League Baseball and their general managers are really good at what I call the dials, of deal, dialing in these things, looking at uh, t- length of service, age, and analytics, bringing, you know, one of the big issues is about 35 players in Major League Baseball are taking up about 50% of all the salaries. And so you have all the rest of those players looking at the other 50%. And so it's just like in the, you know, in economic systems, you get a certain amount of money controlled into a few hands. That's when it starts to become a problem. And so I think that's what's going to happen is somewhere between that age range, whether it's 29, 29 and a half, whatever it's going to be. You look at a guy like Trey Mancini, he's a perfect example of that. He didn't really get to the big leagues until he was 24, 25, and so he may not be a free agent until his early 30s. Well, that's a problem. Versus Manny Machado, who got to the big leagues at 19 and be- could become a free agent at 26, 27. So I think that's key. I think they'll look at age, but I do think that reserve period is what a lot of clubs like Baltimore and Oakland and other teams like that count on to be able to develop their own players and control them cost-wise for a specific period of time. Absent that, I think the system breaks down and it becomes just whoever can spend the most. Excellent. Nobody better to talk sports business, sports business expert Marty Conway, adjunct professor at Georgetown, spent 15 years working in Major League Baseball, including working for the Orioles. Marty, uh, happy holidays and thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed it. Okay, Al. Good to be with you. 
Hope you enjoyed our special guests on this episode 208 of the Al Galdi podcast, Kedrick Goldston and Marty Conway. And that will do it for you and me. But just for now, keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Thursday show, episode 209, will be a jam-packed show. I will have a lot for you on the Washington football team as it on Wednesday with whatever players are still left for the team uh, is beginning the team's practice week for this Sunday afternoon's big game at the Philadelphia Eagles at one. We'll see who's practicing and who isn't. And we expect to hear from both Ron Rivera and Taylor Heineke via post-practice press conferences. Also, post-game games for the Capitals, Wizards, and Georgetown on Wednesday night. The Capitals will be at the Chicago Blackhawks Wednesday night at 8. The Wizards will be at the Sacramento Kings Wednesday night at 10. And Georgetown will be home to Howard Wednesday evening at 6.30. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody.